Welcome to the Poptimist. Today we have Dave Isaacs discussing his new book, The Perpetual Beginner. Thanks for having me back. Of course. Thanks for coming back. So, one thing I was kind of interested in with the book is what made you sit down and decide to finally do it? It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And I think one of the reasons I hadn't was I wanted sure, I wasn't sure exactly what direction to go in. I didn't know if I wanted to write a method book. Is What's out there? Do I need to just add to a crowded field of existing stuff? And what led to this one was, over the last few years, starting to recognize that really the majority of people that I work with were not beginners and were not highly skilled, but were somewhere in the middle. And many of those people still don't feel like they're competent players. They'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm still a beginner, even though I've played guitar for 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is. Interesting. Or you'd hear a lot of, well, yeah, you know, I started playing in high school, I'm, I'm 50 now, and I haven't gotten better since I was 21, or whatever. And it struck me that when I really started looking at it, I bet that of the number of people in the world that own guitars, that play guitars, probably more fall into that long-term beginner, I can play, but I still don't feel like I can play area. And so I started looking at what are the skills that those people are missing? Because I hear this all the time. Right? It's a very, very common thing. I hear the same things from, from different people repeatedly. And it's very frequently that same thing. I can play bits and pieces of things I can't put all the pieces together. So I started looking at what that took. And I've been writing about this stuff for blogs and articles and things like that for a bunch of years. And what really made this all coalesce as far as starting the book was I gave a talk a couple of summers ago for NSAI at Song Camp about melody and communicating melody when you don't play an instrument. Or at least sort of some conceptual things about here's how as a musician I perceive melody. And if you and I are in a co-writing session, how are you going to communicate to me what you're hearing because I'm proceeding with the idea that you do hear it in your head, even if your voice isn't going to let you sing what you want me to hear. That most of the songwriters I've worked with over the years, I think, really do have a pretty complete idea in their heads of what the finished song sounds like. But there's some kind of disconnect in terms of the musical ability and the musical skill to be able to communicate that. Which then leads you to, well, so what are the things someone needs to see and can you teach someone to explain them or at least articulate them in some way, even if they don't have the skill on the instrument or, or some kind of musical gift? So I give this talk, and a couple of people came up to me afterwards, and we were chatting, ended up sitting and having lunch with them, and it turns out one of them is a book publicist and one of them is an author with 27 books out. And in the, con in the course of having this lunch, I said, like, yeah, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. And I think they both said, yeah, do it. Write about what you just did what you just talked about. And so that's sort of what brought it all together was this idea that, okay, I know who I'm aiming at. I'm aiming at people that want to play better than they do, and they know something, but they know they're missing something, and they're not comfortable. So what are the things they are missing? And then this little bit of psychology of what are they perceiving, and what do they need to understand to communicate to me as a musician what I need to know to give them back what they want to hear. And so it led into this process of, and I don't, I think that the 
the memoir aspect of it, of the book, sort of came later as I started writing about it because I've been listening to a lot of TED Talks, watching a lot of TED Talks on uh, YouTube and so forth, and actually read a book about TED Talks because this is a goal. I want to do a TED Talk. And everything is tell the story, tell the story. you got to bring people in by telling a story. So I had the idea of trying to identify particular formative moments, if there's a good story, and talk about, I met this person at such and such, this is the interaction I had with them, and this is what I learned from it. And then follow that up with a breakdown of, well, this is what that lesson was, here's what it means, here's how it applies to you. And that worked out as a good formula for how to proceed. So once I had that, then I had my model for how to put each chapter together. And that then led to, okay, let's talk about this and not that, because this topic, I can follow this idea of tell the story and then dissect the problem or the lesson a little bit and then apply it. And if I couldn't do that in that sequence, that's, then that story wasn't going to make it into the book because it wasn't necessarily as relevant. So you were looking for a formula to kind of tie it into your life yes. and kind of tell that story. Yeah, looking for a way to connect. The information is coming from a particular place, and I want to tell the story of that as opposed to just giving you the information. Because number one, it edifies me because it's saying, here's where this came from, and here's who I got it from, this was the setting. And then this event might have been 25, 30 years ago. So I've got all this intervening time to sort of process and use that information and all this time of trying to then pass it on to other people, communicate it that way. So, yeah, it was definitely a process of sort of settling into a formula or at least a method so that I wasn't just blindly writing. Like, I knew what the general target was going to be. And I just wanted to know that I could make it flow as a longer form book as opposed to, you know, you write a blog, if I'm 1,500 words, that's, that's all right, generally. Mm -hmm. You know, for something online, I'm not trying to make it real long anyway. Yeah. So to then say, well, for a chapter, I want to at least double that. And I have no idea how long this is ultimately going to be, but I want it to feel like a book and not a pamphlet. Mm -hmm. So you have it to was have, a real quick read. Yeah, it well, was an that's, easy read. That's good, and that's what it was meant to be. But definitely, like, like it, it, I wouldn't have wanted it to be longer than it is. But I wanted to make sure I had enough to say. Like, I remember I had these notes in the margins, and like my freshman English classes, you know, of like, you need to show more and tell less. You need to explain. You always say the little, the the least amount possible which is a lesson I tried to take to heart, especially with this, like, okay, you made an assertion, now back it up, now give an example, now come at it from another perspective. And that really helped organize the whole thing. And I had a lot of help through this. I mean, um, both uh, Mary Glenn McCombs, who's a publicist that I'm working with on this book, is one of the people that I met at that NSAI event. And she has been advising me through the whole process, giving me reads and opinions and things like that. And Dan Sherris, who's a songwriter and an author, who's the other person I met at that event, and the two of them um, were both reading my drafts and giving me commentary and things like that. So I had people in the industry giving me direction as I went, and then I had a lot of the previous stuff to pull from. So it was like I had years of drafts 
from the blogs, but I needed the formula or at least the, the mm. process to plug that into for it to actually turn into the book. I think that was the thing that really made it happen. Here's the information. Here is the, the vessel in which you're going to deliver it. And you had to have that outline. You had to have the blueprint for what that, that delivery system was to be able to really put it into this form as a book. How long did the whole process take from I'm going to do this to completion? About two years. Wow, okay. And was this your, your main focus every single day, or was this something kind of happening in the background? It was happening in the background. A lot of people had told me early on that the way you want to do this is you want to set aside your writing time and place, and you go and you sit at your desk at 8.30 every morning and you write for three hours or whatever it is. I've heard a lot of writers say that. And I couldn't for the life of me make that work. My life is just too... There's too many moving parts. Spoken like a true musician. Well, yeah. It's true, and in order to, to make this feasible, and I think I learned something too in the process, what I ended up doing was, anytime I knew I had a window, I was going to sit down and write for an hour, and that was, that was it. If I could do more than that, great, but in terms of sitting and really giving concentrated attention to something, that's about what I was good for. I'm also, I mean, having taught for so many years... Um, my brain works neatly in hour blocks. <laughs> so sure, having yeah, that yeah. break, you know, of five minutes or whatever in between is always good. But So I just gave myself permission to accomplish whatever I was going to accomplish that day, which is a piece of advice I got from other writers too, which is it doesn't matter if you got a sentence. If you sat down and you worked and you got a sentence, that's progress for the day. So it might have been done more quickly. Like I kept saying to myself, you know, I just need to go and, like, rent a cabin and spend, like, two weeks. Like, no phone, no internet, no TV, just sit and write the book. Yeah, yeah right. It's all Like, I'm going to do that. Yeah. You know, like, that's, right. It seems like a romantic idea. Now all I can picture is, is like, you know, Jack Nicholson's head in the door. Yeah. <laughs> like, the hotel over the winter and yeah come play with us forever you know, mm -hmm. like shining references for those of you who are missing all of that okay just gotta say um but yeah the only way to get it done was just to allow it to be an ongoing commitment in the background yeah. and when i think about it most of the time that's the only way i've ever accomplished anything larger is by saying okay here's the goal there's all these moving parts and we're just going to move it forward one piece at a time until we get there Especially when there's no real deadline, there's no imperative, other than just know that you're committed to working on it. And one of the trickier things, and maybe this is a superstition, but I've heard more than one person say, first rule of writing a book is you don't tell people you're writing a book until you're actually sure you're going to finish it. Because otherwise, oh yeah, you're writing a book? Yeah, I'm still writing it. Yeah, I'm still writing it. And there's... I guess you have to recognize the shelf life of your own enthusiasm. Yes, you know? totally. Which is kind of like where I got to when I brought in an editor. It was when I was at a point where I didn't know whether it needed more, but I didn't know if I had more, and I didn't know exactly what that looked like. So I can't look at this anymore right now. Let me get another opinion, and somebody can tell me, am I close, and what does it need? And so what that did was basically I got the feedback, yes, you're close. I think it would be good for you to have a, a wrap-up of some kind. 
So the last chapter was written as, as that wrap-up. And what was interesting about that is that the last chapter ended up being about using a lot of the ideas myself because I was getting tired of everything I knew how to do. And sort of documenting, well, how did I go about changing that? How did I go about breaking out of that rut and finding something else to do? And when I started writing about it, it was like, well, yeah, of course. Well, these are the skills, the stuff I'm talking about in the book. This is what I was taught to do when I learned how to do, and it works. What is the talent trap? The talent trap has two sides. One is you don't think you have any talent, so you're not going to try. The other is things come easy to you, and so the moment you have to start working hard, you stop because this doesn't feel right. This isn't what I'm used to. So it's both, it's both sides. It's essentially, the, I guess the trap is really thinking that, that natural ability is a requirement. And the thing that you hear people expressing who aren't musical or don't consider themselves to be musical is, well, I don't have any talent. They feel like they have to somehow justify, well, yeah, you know, I love music. I, 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 I play the guitar, but, you know, I'm not a musician. I'm not... I don't have any aspirations. Okay, fine. You may not want to make a career out of this, but why would you say, well, you know, I just expect to suck because I wasn't, you know, sprinkled with the magic fairy dust. With the Jimi Hendrix dust. Yeah. And, you know, we can, you want to be inspired by the greats. You want to be, you know, it's pretty cool when someone just makes you go, what? Where did that just come from? How did that person do that? I mean, that's exciting. But one of the things that keeps coming to my mind is no one tells, you know, if you want to play golf or if you want to you play pickup basketball on the weekends or whatever it is that you do, you know, corporate softball team, no one says, well, you know, you don't have what it takes to be a professional athlete, so I don't think you're going to make the team here. You know, interesting. Yeah, nobody says that. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, go knock yourself out. I mean, if you have suck, fun. Yeah, if if the rest of your team hates you because you suck, okay, you're on the wrong team. I get that, but this idea that in music, if you don't have that natural affinity, then you shouldn't even bother. And I think that that's a, actually a very pervasive belief. You know, music used to be a particip- participatory. Thing. People sang, families sang together, people played instruments together. Everybody was involved in some way. Communal. It was communal, yes. Whether you were actually playing an instrument or singing or not, it was just part of what went on. And we don't do that anymore. I mean, in Nashville we do, sort of, kind of. Yeah. But it's, it's become a spectator sport. Why do you think that is? I think partly it's this culture of celebrity and hero worship that we have we want to put we want to put exceptional people on pedestals but there's a difference between someone that has developed something that's fundamentally human to an almost superhuman degree and something that's well that's just not fundamentally human that's straight from god well maybe it is but it's still fundamentally human Interesting. We organize sound. We communicate using sound. Every culture has music. And it's a part of the things that are the most important to us. You think about the big events in your life. Most of them, if there's some kind of ceremony involved, there is music. 
it tells the story. I've been thinking a lot about this recently. I think food and music both tell the story of culture. Sure. I'll go with that. It's because every culture around the world, like you were saying, has music. Everybody eats. And it's something that really represents our culture's kind of beginnings and kind of what is going on in it. Mm-hmm. And you could add language to that, too. Sure, yes. But, and, of course, that it's, it's you know, vast, and you really start going down that road. But those two things, you're right, you know, are definitely... And interestingly enough, both things that can easily spread, things can be borrowed from, whether you're talking about music or about cooking. You can just say, hey, I'm going to use that spice. I'm going to use that sound. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is how anything new has ever happened in the world anyway is uh what was it we we had talked about the whole uh the last time we did this the whole intellectual dark web thing yes right and yes, all the different yes, podcasters yes. so uh was it on mixed mental arts where they talk about well yeah we bring people on and they bring in ideas and then ideas have idea sex and new ideas are born yeah and it's like yeah that's that's a good way to think about it it's just here is this, here is that, and those two things are going to meld and create something new. And where it gets tricky, and this is a topic for maybe an entirely different podcast, who knows, but music is wrapped up in our identities, not just culturally, but personally. Yes. Which is one of the things that I, I think, not that this was any great mystery, you know, we, we all know, I mean, I think about my high school you could tell what music somebody listened to by the way they dressed. Yes. And who how they hung out with. Yes, and how long their hair was. Yes, all of that. Yeah. So, you know, it's clearly a way that young people define themselves. But when I started looking back and writing the book and saying, okay, well, I mean, I certainly had some affinity for music. I know I had a good ear. Even when I was very, very little, I like banging things out on the piano. I took to the guitar very quickly. But... You know, what was the thing that really hooked me? Like, really hooked me. And, yes, it was the music itself. That was exciting. That was cool. That was fun. It was all those things. But it was also, I get to be that person. You know, it was a thing. It wasn't just, yeah, I I mess around. Because lots of people pick up the guitar and they learn it and whatever. I picked up the guitar. Now my clothes are different. Now my hair is different. Now my attitude is different. And, Rock and roll. And that, well, yeah, I went from like you know seventh grade computer geek to like you know smoking cigarettes in the woods behind the high school <laughs> and all of that. And it was to some degree a part of this is a role that I can step into, and this gives me because you know we're, what are we always doing as young people? We're looking for ways to navigate the world, and some people are more comfortable in their own skins than others, but. You know, it's, we want to know, how am I supposed to be? You know, you're 15, you're just trying to figure this out. And so it was very much like, yeah, I can be that. And it didn't matter, this was the best part, I can say, yeah, man, I'm a guitar player. Well, I've only been playing for a year, and I can only play like this, but I'm still a guitar player. Like, yeah. I can own the identity, whether I have the chops to back it up or not, at least in high school. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But, I mean, I think part of that is part of what you fall in love with when you really fall in love with playing an instrument. Absolutely. Everybody can say, well, it's just about the music and the way it made me feel and all that. And yes, I totally agree with that. And the other big conclusion that I came to in the book is that really music is about connecting. 
that you connect with other people when you play music with them. You, you connect with the people who are listening because you're communicating. And you connect to something inside yourself when you find what you gravitate to. And that gets into the cultural norm, too. You know, there are certain things that just go right through you for whatever reason. You know, and it might be something that you just, you grew up with it, and so it just connects to a certain thing in your, in your life. But, you know, ultimately this thing about connection, but I know speaking personally, and maybe to a fault, I still have very much of my sense of who I am wrapped up in music and playing music, and not like it was when I was 15. Sure. But... You know, I had, uh, a couple of years ago, I had a fall and I hurt my left hand. And so I couldn't play without pain for about a month. And it was scary. And it was like, well, geez, you know, what happens if this happens and it's permanent and you can't play? Not just what do you do, but who are you? Yeah, You know, totally. that's, that's eye-opening, which got me also thinking about more writing and more other kinds of creative work. So it's not, I mean, it's... Yeah, this is the area where I live. This is what I love to do. This is what I love to talk about. All of those things, but to have your sense of self, self, and even a certain amount of your sense of usefulness to the world, you know, wrapped up in what you do playing music, is this tricky thing. I mean, n maybe not the same for everybody as far as, sure. you know, the position it occupies in their lives. You know, if you devote yourself to it, then yeah, that's going to happen. But the whole reason I started down that line of thinking was looking at when people start to lose motivation and when they start to feel like they're not progressing, right? So this is what happens. The average person feels like, well, I don't have any great gift for this, but I like it, so I'm going to start working at it. And at, at first... They know they don't know anything, they know it's new, so they allow themselves to make mistakes, they give themselves time to progress, and then after a while they get to a point where they start questioning it, because everybody hits that barrier at some point. And now it's just going to take doing the work. This is where the craft, the technique, the knowledge comes in. How do you practice? How do you go about it? But also, what are you thinking about? How do you motivate yourself? And I realized, like, for the average adult, enthusiast, hobbyist, no matter how serious you are about it, your life is more complicated. You're not just going to fall in love with your identity of playing the guitar or any instrument the way I did at 14, 15, because you have a different life. You know, that's not the dynamic of the world that you live in. So if it's not overwhelming talent that just sucks you in, if it's not the social aspect of being part of something, if neither one of those two things is there for you, what engages you? What's going to keep you motivated? And so I think that is where it comes down to making those connections. Is it that you play music with other people, and so it's that experience of doing that with them? Mm. Is it that it makes it lets you commune with something, whether it's something that's a, a memory for you? You know, my grandfather liked to sing these bluegrass songs, so I play this because it makes me think of him, or whatever. Um... My grandfather didn't sing bluegrass. I'm just using the example. Um, or even if it's just, you know, I listen to Bach and I'm hearing the music of the spheres and I'm seeing the celestial beings and all of this. You know, it's just whatever it is. It could be something completely sublime, but yet it connects to you in some way. You know, if you ask the average person, so what is it about this that you like? Listen to a piece of music. 
And at first they might just go, well, yeah, it's, you know, I like the beat or I like what it's saying. You start drawing out the conversation. But what do you hear? What is that? There's always a lot in there. You know, you, you look deeper for the things that speak to you. And when you identify that, that gives you a reason to keep going. You know, because you're, you're not just... So it makes me think of something Bill Evans, the jazz pianist, said in an interview. It was a fantastic um, interview from the 60s. It's black and white, they're all in suits, smoking cigarettes, there's smoke everywhere. It's very 1961. Um, Bill Evans, genius of jazz piano. And he says something to the effect of, you know, if you want to succeed in anything, you have to realize that the problem is large and you have to get to know it thoroughly, piece by piece, by looking at all the different elements from different directions until you see the whole thing. Now, that's not exactly how he said it. The, the problem is large, is definitely something he said. And something like to really get to know the thing. He's not the most articulate guy. But essentially just saying, yeah, it's complicated. And you get to know it by saying, well, what is it? I'm going to look more closely at this, and now at this, and now at this. And it's back to that thing of giving yourself permission to just take the time that it takes. Like writing the book. I don't have a deadline. I just want to be able to do this. So if somebody's practicing something, I'm going to give myself permission to not be able to do this for another month or six months or whatever it turns out to be. And I'm going to absorb myself in chasing this thing that is the part of this that's interesting to me or exciting to me. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. Basically, yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's also the motivation. You know, it is what keeps you in it if you feel like, if you feel like it's a struggle. Who in a, the average person's busy, complicated life wants to struggle, except for the fact that it is good for us and a challenge is good for the brain, and it's good for your sense of accomplishment when you meet it and all of those things. But you still, you know, playing music, there's got to be some time there where it just feels good. And that's the other side of it, too. That's, you want to cultivate whatever it is that makes that happen. And if that means doing something really simple, one string, bum, 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 bum. I have a guitar student, sometime guitar student, comes in from Canada, um, every couple of months I'll see her. Her name is uh, Megan Naden. Really fine young singer, songwriter. And you can look this up. She's out there on Instagram. She started something called the One String Wonder Project. And I love this because she was just beginning to learn guitar. Discovered, oh, I can hold a low note and just kind of slide it around and it gives me something I can sing to. So she was able to make that connection of, oh, the bass note is enough to give me the foundation for my voice. So she started this One String Wonder project where she's doing cover songs, playing the guitar, one bass note, and singing to it, and then augmenting in other ways. She might have somebody else come in or some other uh, aspect to it. But obviously, yes, you want to learn how to do more than play with one finger on one string, sure. but what did she do? She took, here's what I can do right now, and I'm going to use this. The parameters. Yes. Within this, this is what I can accomplish at this moment. And that hits into one of the other really big ideas, which never even occurred to me until I was working on this book, which is 
You spend all your time chasing something you can't do yet. So you're always working, working, pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. At some point, every artist, anyone that ever inspired us, started doing in addition to trying to do. And what makes the difference? Well, either you can do it or you can't. Rather, when you do it, you can do it with a level of satisfaction and confidence, which is all that you're ever really looking for. If I can do it confidently, that's, that's what I need to be able to do. And creative people just find a way to express themselves, and they do it. And who are the people that inspired us? Who are the people? So out of every musician that ever made you go, I want to be able to do that, how many of those people... I mean, everybody did the work. Everybody practiced. Everybody went to school in one way or another, whether it was an actual school or whether it was the road or whether it was, you know, however you learned. But at some point, all those people just did what they did. And many of them couldn't even tell you much about what they did. You know, they just I'm, did it. They just did it. I'm coming at it from the perspective of, I have a master's degree in music, I've learned how to dissect and pick apart and all of those things. And yet, so many people that inspired me to want to do what I do aren't anywhere near looking at it from that perspective, of that mindset of, I'm going to practice for years to be able to reach this goal. They just did, and they didn't necessarily know about what they were doing. So, what that tells you, is that the way most people are taught, you know, you go and you take lessons, if you're taking sort of traditional lessons, it really is like it's moving you towards, step by step, what a formal education might be. You know, even if that's your little red piano book that starts with two fingers on two black keys and bum, 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 whatever it is, mm -hmm. there is a sequence which continues. You go through book one, book two, book three, and by the time you finish book six, well, now you could pass an audition to music school, right? Well, great, all that works. That's important. But that is the traditional model of how one learns an instrument, step, 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 consciously moving towards something. At what point do you go back and say, well, I've learned this, I know how to do this. And people need to do that. If that's all people do, then five years down the road they haven't gotten any better because they weren't balancing the effort to learn and grow with the effort to cultivate the love. I'm just going to go back to where I live, because this feels good. And any lifelong musician is absolutely doing that. They're always working on something new, but it's not like they live at the edge of their abilities all the time. Maybe some do, you know, which got to be an exciting and scary place to be. To have a gig like that's pushing you that far every time you step on stage is actually really cool, because nothing makes you grow like that. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. For sure. That, you know, you're particularly, you know, we're surrounded by musicians that play for their main gig, what they do, stuff that really is not difficult, it's just that they do it with a level of authority. And you, see, that's the other side of it, is that it's one thing to be able to play the part, however simple or complicated it might be. It's another to be able to play the part in a way that has the authority, the confidence, the energy to make somebody listen to it. And it's like 
anybody can say the words, you know, but some people actually communicate. Some actors can, or some people can try to read a sonnet, and it just sounds like somebody using funny language. And other people can get up there and read Shakespeare, and it's like you just got hit upside the head with you the truth. You feel it. Yeah. And those are the things, then, if you're constantly focused on, i got to get better, next, next exercise, next this, faster on the metronome, new scale, whatever it is, at what point do you then go back and say, I want to be able to do one simple thing really well. You know how hard it is to play pop rock and roll like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? You know what I mean? Yeah, like totally. Those are not complicated songs, but There's you sit artistry down to the and sound like that band. You know, and you could say that about so many things that as skilled as I've learned how to be in 37 years playing the guitar and 30 of that doing it professionally, there are still simple things that I know I'm going to have to get into the weeds to make this sound as good as that guy that can't do, I don't know, 70%, 80% of what I can do on a guitar. I still have to work to make it sound as good as he does because that's where he lives and that's what he does. And going back to the talent thing, maybe that's because that's a gifted person, but that's okay. You know, the, how they got there is not the point. The point is that they got there. That makes me think of the Ramones, because the Ramones were not great technical musicians. No. I mean, Johnny Ramone, he couldn't even play a guitar solo. Right. And their whole thing was just they had really catchy songs, and they had a lot of energy to it. They and energy. they just knew how to write catchy songs, mm -hmm. and that was... That was it. Yeah. But listen to the guitar tones. You know, put on one of those records. You know, put on Blitzkrieg Bop and tell me that you're not going to start moving. Yeah. Like, I don't care whether you like that music or not. You know, you might, what, the Ramones? I never listened to the Ramones. But just put that on. If somebody is not going, oh, well, I don't like punk music. You know, just, it just comes on. Why did they use different music and commercials and things like that that clearly references, you know, music we know. It's just because you feel that beat, you know, and there's a response to it. So it is compelling, and it is authoritative, even if it wasn't highly skilled. Yes. You know, and the thing is, though, highly skilled, you know, whether it means that you can sit down and navigate something very technically challenging, but are you skilled if you can't make people respond? You know? That's a very interesting question. It's, I mean, because you can shred all day long, but if everybody is half asleep in the audience, right. is that really the purpose of music? Yeah, and of course that goes back to the the difference between what people are looking for. Sure. You know, so um, for example, I'm a lifelong fan of the Grateful Dead, and whenever people Love start talking, Dead. but so so whenever someone that is not into the Dead starts going, oh God, just the endless noodling, I'm like, well, okay. If what you are looking for is the perfect Tom Petty three-and-a-half-minute pop rock song, then no, this is not going to satisfy you. Yes. And personally, I love and appreciate both. But, you know, even the idea of, oh, well, it's just noodling, it's not going anywhere. It's like, well, no, that's not the point. It is going somewhere. You just don't know where it is yet, and neither do they. And that's the part that's cool, right? And some people like being taken on that journey, and some people don't. It's okay. Some things are very concrete. You know, I find the more I, the older I get, the more I'm interested in just sounds. You know, like, 
I find white noise to be interesting, you know, with the rhythmic patterns that you start hearing in just ambient sound. And without getting all John Cage about it and really going like, well, you know, the music is in the silence. Which is all true. Yeah. It is true, okay? There's this whole thing of like, we can flirt with highbrow, but it's actually not that highbrow. It, it's like, you know, I can fall asleep to a YouTube video of a guy driving a semi-truck because they're... Just the, there's something there's a rhythmic pulse. Yeah, there's something musical to me about the sound of that engine, you know, and just the sonics of it. So I mean, you can point man, you can fixate on anything. You know, you can be moved by a lyric. You can move to a beat. You can just be uh, interested in a sound. You know, there's records that I hear lately. I've started to hear music from the early mid-80s a little bit differently uh, started returning to some of that stuff that I hadn't listened to in a long time so like recently when Rick Ocasek passed away from the Cars yes. and I loved the Cars and I was in like the first rock and roll band that I actually ever saw was the Cars really? 1980 nice. maybe something like that 81 yeah. knowing absolutely nothing other than I just liked the songs I wasn't even playing guitar yet or maybe I was just starting. But now, so I listen, and I'm hearing the synth sounds that they're using in these late 70s, early 80s, and it's like, well, that's really interesting, because this was long before, you know, nobody had presets. Yeah. You know, they were just exploring sounds and finding this stuff, and through the 70s into the 80s, how synthesizers kind of developed, and that's a really cool sound. And then realizing that was part of what was interesting about this song to me was what is that sound? You know, what did that? It sounded futuristic. Yeah, it did. Or it was just, you just got some kind of a, of a thing from it. Um, it didn't even have to be synths. I mean, so another band that I'm, that I'm still like huge fan of is Genesis. And from the early days up through I'd say Abacab is the last record, so that's 83, I think, um, before they went really full-on, just invisible touch pop. But not being savvy enough when I was younger to know what I was hearing, I didn't know how much I was just hearing organ and the different ways that you can manipulate the sound. Same thing with the band, with Garth Hudson and the way that he used the organ, all these tones and just manipulating these things. And it's like, oh wow, it's just the sound. But there are particular keyboard sounds that I know I just loved the, the feeling of it. You know, so it was just the pure sonics. So there's all the different things that, that we relate to, and it goes back to that thing of saying, well, what's exciting to you? What's interesting to you? You know, how does that keep you, how does that keep you motivated and connected? And, and just, this is cool. You know, feeling like, I want to keep doing this because mm -hmm. this is cool. Regardless of whether I feel like I can do it well or not. It's still cool, even if I suck. Definitely. I've, I've found myself, really over this past year, it's like I'm always searching for new things and new flavors to get that buzz. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to try new things. But I'm starting to really see, I think at a certain point I was like, Okay, I actually, I do this thing, and I do it well, and I should just be focusing on this. Right. Like, it's cool to be able to go off and experiment with jazz and do all that stuff and get into the theory behind it, but it's like, as a player, that's not 
what's in my DNA. I right. can develop and hone those skills. Right. And try and do new things, but there's something like, for me, I figured out, okay, if people want me to play with them, chances are they probably like like Led Zeppelin, and they like James Jamerson. Those are the kind of bass players that they like. Right. And for a long time, I was trying to not necessarily not be that, but I was like, well, I want to get really serious into jazz, and I want to get jazz gigs, and I was like, that, that's great. But it almost becomes counterproductive at a certain point. I it was can. finding myself getting into just getting into the weeds of, of practicing and burning myself out musically. Right. To where I wasn't interested anymore. Right. And I kind of had to do a reboot and just take it back to the basics. It's like, what gets me excited? Yeah. Yeah, you have to have that home. Yeah. You know, you have to have that place. Like, I definitely, for me, it's it's in a similar kind of vein. I think my default with an electric guitar in my hand is 1971 or so power trio you know totally. it's just, and that's just something it's as natural as breathing at this point to go to that place and it feels good and doesn't mean that okay musically I'm going to go here I'm going to go here I'm going to go here but there's still come back to this and then you know give me an acoustic guitar it's going to go to a slightly different kind of place but but yeah there's definitely that home and then it's, once again, this idea of balancing. Whether you're talking about, as a professional, having the main gigs that you do, and then the stuff that you do to stimulate your musical and your mental growth, or whether you're just messing around, but it's, here's the thing I'm practicing to get better, and here's this song that I love, so I'm just going to play this song. And I don't know, it's funny how few people will particularly if they don't sing, but how few people left to their own devices will actually develop a repertoire at some point. Particularly if they're taking lessons, because then they're always just practicing whatever this week's lesson is. Mm -hmm. Well, how many songs have you learned? Oh, yeah, I guess about 20. How many can you play? Oh, I can't play any of them. Okay, well, shouldn't we be going back? You know, like, yes, we keep doing this, but what happened to this thing that... A year ago was hard. I'll bet you if you try it now, it's easy. Well, go do that. And then go back and do the hard thing. You know, it's, it's like anything else, right? You just have to balance. You can't live in one place. Or things get worn out. So your suggestion, if someone starts stalling out on practicing, it's maybe go back and try something before that was challenging to you as you've advanced... Yeah, and then go back and try the stuff that's harder to you after you kind of nail something and build the confidence. Well, that's a lot of it, yeah. I mean, but it's also just that at some point you have to start getting some payback, some some payoff, rather, from the effort that you put in. So it's not going back to something easy just to play something easy. It's going back to something that's easier for you because you can dig into it. You can forget yourself a little bit. You can really just throw something into the performance. Or even if you're not there, that you start looking at those things. What are some other details I can find in this that I missed before? Because there's always something. You know, there's always another layer. There's always some other aspect that that you can develop. But, but yeah, it's just... When we really start playing in the first place, we're just trying to touch whatever it is that was exciting to us when we heard it. 
you know, if it was that feeling, or just whatever that thing was, you know, it's like, yeah, rock and roll, man, you know what I was like, like, I, don't, I have no idea if it's completely passe to say, yeah, rock and roll, because is rock and roll dead, you know, there's that whole thing, right, sure. but the idea that, what does everybody really want, you just, you want to be the engine, you want to be creating that energy, that thing, that when it came at you, made you feel whatever it is it made you feel. And you go, I want to do that. And maybe it's because, yeah, that person looks cool doing that. Or, wow, that guy's surrounded by all these girls. You know, whatever it is, right? totally. But there's certainly, it's never just that. Or I shouldn't say that. It is often not just that. And if it is just that, no one's going to stay in it for the long haul. Yes. It's like the people you meet here in Nashville that after a while you realize you're really not in the music business. You are in the celebrity business. Yes. And however oh. you happen to get in yes. is all good. Okay, that's fine. Right? But that's that's different. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, if a song came on the radio or, or whatever, um, a song came on, <laughs> I'm being very conscious of dating myself, um, you hear a song and it makes you happy or it makes you move or, you know, I was in a lousy mood and now this made my day because this song came on while I was on my way to work. Whatever it is, everybody's had that. So I want to touch that. You know, it's that thing. So what allows you to get there? Well, now we've got all these obstacles. You have to learn how to make your hands do this or your voice do this. And hold your hand this way or your mouth this way or whatever it is, Right. You gotta navigate through all that that stands in between you and that feeling. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Once you've done it enough, then well, okay, I've developed this much. What's the shortest distance to that feeling right now? Well, that reminds me a little bit of like the Grateful Dead too, because their whole thing was just opening themselves up completely to the moment. Right. And that is hard. It's very hard. They had some help. <laughs> but And the flip side of it is that sometimes it didn't work. Yes. You know, because the moment is not always going to oblige you. Yes. <laughs> sometimes you crash and burn. Yeah, and that's the chance you take. And, you know, I certainly, that is the side that I fall on as far as if I am going to have a choice between taking a flying leap and seeing if I hit something fantastic or doing something that I know is going to work, I would rather take the flying leap. There are definitely situations where you want to play it safe, but, you know, it's, to me, if you're in a situation where you are a piece of the puzzle, like playing in an orchestra or any kind of group where there's real interaction between the parts, and when everything's good, the satisfaction is playing your part, being an effective part of the whole. And that's, again, one of the great things about playing music in any number of ways is that it gives you this sense of, of communion, of being connected. Even if you're just, you know, singing along with, with a room full of people at an event and there's that feeling, right? Or do you ever see the, and I don't, someone who knows more about this might uh, chime in with some, whatever correction but there was a video that I saw it was from a, a soccer game a football game in European you know rest of the world football in England and I forgot which team it was and this is I think a thing they do but the entire soccer stadium sang you'll never walk alone and it's like Manchester United or one of them that's kind of a thing that they do and it's like this 
how many thousands of people? Why do they do this? It's because it's this is us now. When that's going on, everyone is a part of that. It's a battle cry. Yeah. It it's at, but it's like it's also why that song. It's like there's a there's an emotion there that everybody gets to be a part of. In other words, there no barriers to entry other than just being able to be there and with thousands of people singing, who cares if you can't sing? No one can hear you anyway. Yeah. Right? So no barriers to entry, you're just part of the feeling. And the challenge with playing an instrument is the barriers to entry and getting past all that stuff, which is where the talent comes in. If you have a gift, you have lower barriers to entry because it just comes more naturally. Sure. A question I have for you is about um, one thing you were talking about in the, the book. Um, what is the difference between the purist and the maverick? This kind of goes to... It relates to what I was talking about before about looking at our inspirations. A friend of mine uh, goes by the name of Preacher Boy. His name is Christopher Watkins. He's a writer and a singer-songwriter and poet. And writes a great blog about music. Look him up. And he was talking about... And he's in a blues realm, but not a traditionalist. He plays a steel body guitar from 1930 in that kind of style, but his songs don't sound like he's trying to be a musician from 1930. And he was talking about blues musicians in particular who will say, no, that's not right. Muddy didn't do it that way. He's like, he basically said, you're an idiot. Muddy was a, was a maverick. Muddy was a trailblazer. Muddy started doing this, went to Chicago and did something that had never been done before. Yes. You know, or when I remember playing a duet, guitar duet with somebody in Summertime, the George Gershwin song, and he looks at me, he's like, well, I don't think Gershwin wrote it that way. Dude, Miles would slap you upside the head with his horn. What yes. are you talking about? Yeah, totally. You know, are you missing the point here? You know, but at the same time, when something is pure, when it is dead on, it is that, and you love it like that, you want to hear it that way. So, uh, you know, these both things are valid, but it's, well, which do you want to be? So, you know, it's, in the book I talked about having this experience of playing in a master class right after college um, for a very eminent classical guitar player, and I played him a Spanish piece by a Spanish composer, and I didn't know that he had studied with one of the greats of Spanish guitar, so, like, really close to the source. And so he didn't like my rasqueado, my strum, you know, the Spanish flamenco strum, because I was kind of using a workaround, sort of cheat. I wasn't really doing it the correct way. And he made a big thing out of that. And I had played the same thing in my graduation recital, Manhattan School. I had played it for the head of the guitar program at Juilliard. They didn't say you're doing it wrong. So this guy's an expert. So are these. He's telling me, no, you got to do it this way. Well, does he have a point? If it's meant to... If I'm supposed to strum this in a way that makes you see, you know, Don Quixote in the windmill, okay, then great. But does the music still work if I take this approach instead of that approach? If this one says yes and this one says yes, but the one who was trained by somebody that came from that place and is the source said no, well, this is the pure approach. You can choose pure, but you know, when someone who is coming at it from a pure perspective, and every genre of music has this, 
you have it in jazz, read the, uh, the reviews section, the album reviews of Downbeat Magazine. And they are vicious in saying someone doesn't know how to do this thing. You know, he shouldn't be doing this until he can do that. Is that really true? You know, like, is that a, is that a way for music to be engaging? There is room for people to faithfully recreate a style that's fantastic. It's beautiful, but it's also museum culture. It's not how anything I new like that happens. term. You know, it's and uh, I'll go to a very probably flip quote from uh, you know the band the Bottle Rockets. Uh, so Brian Henneman, who's the the main songwriter and singer, was talking about they had done a tour. This was years ago, but they'd done a tour opening for Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and they were like, "What is it with the blues fans?" He's like, how come when a bunch of accountants in their 40s get together, it's always a blues band? It's like, <laughs> you know, any style of music that needs a preservation society to keep it alive deserves to die. I don't agree with that. Sure. And he probably didn't mean it like that anyway. Yeah. Because they, they, they do a song called The White Boy Blues, which is really pretty funny. Because it's yeah. like learning from the Stevie Ray videos, trying to work his way up to a 12-gauge E. You know, he's a low-down, mean attorney at law, you know. <laughs> but... Okay, preservation society, you are preserving. Like, does that mean that, no, that guy shouldn't do that? You can't call that blues. You can't call that jazz. You can't call that country. It's a load of... How does anything new ever happen? Getting back to culture, music, and food, I'm going to take a little bit of this spice. Why is that a problem? So now, either I am a sham, because I'm not living up to... I'm not doing it right... Or, worse, now I'm guilty of cultural appropriation because I took this thing and put it in that. The culture trap. Right. Well, which has only been happening for as long as there have been human beings trying to deal with each other. Yeah. So, I don't know. All of this stuff kind of spins around and around to the same core. You know? When it comes to expectations... Yes. ...and being a musician, and maybe just in life in general, how do you let go of them? What advice would you have to mm. give? That's a tough one, but I think you your expectations have to be realistic, number one. You know, recognizing, like just taking a good look at what you are expecting of yourself. Recognizing whether it's attainable, attainable with tremendous effort, like people are going to tell you you can't do it, but I feel like I can, so I'm going to do it. Or whether it really just isn't realistic. All right. And the part that's unrealistic, or I, should say, I shouldn't even say it's unrealistic. The problem I see my students having is they'll put a timeline in their heads arbitrarily on how much time you should have put in before you can do something. Why am I still working on this? I should have it by now. I'm so frustrated. I've been practicing it for two weeks. I should have it by now. That phrase, I should have it by now. With a, as a professional, if I've got to learn something for a gig, there is absolutely, and I should have it by now. But for the person who is just trying to accomplish something, you just it's like writing the book. You have to just give it the time that it takes. You have to recognize what you're putting in. Is your effort lining up with the expectations you've set for yourself? Is that effort, what you can do, going to get you to that goal? And it's just a question of being, I mean, again, 
if you're connecting to the love, the energy, the, the motivation, the thing that's at the core of it, then you can use that to manage not living up to your expectations because you're still being driven by that other thing. You know, so I think it's really a question of sort of sidestepping and saying, never mind what you expect of yourself, what do you feel? Does it feel good? You know, are you seeing progress? Are you getting any satisfaction? If you're not, what can you change? Are you so feeling? Yeah. Are are your expectations really just getting in the way of your ability to go forward? Because now you're just all you're seeing is what you're not doing, which is pretty typical. You know, we all do that. For sure. You don't pick up on the good. You just pick up. It's like you come off stage and someone says that was great, and you have the impulse to say, "Well, yeah." What is it? Don't. (laughs) <laughs> don't do that totally <laughs> so it's it's always going to be a challenge but that's also you know that's also just part of being human we want to do something we want to do it well we want to do it right I don't think anyone ever sets out to suck and it's, you know it's a whole other thing unless they're playing punk but even then no you be, it's punk can still you can be a punk fan and a punk band can suck if they don't have, if there's no energy, if it doesn't sure. make you move, if it doesn't, if it's just like, well, what's this? I mean, yeah, the Sex Pistols couldn't play their instruments. Yeah. You know? But that's and part of the aesthetic, though. That's it, what they're going for. That is what they're going for. And it's also performance art to some degree. Yes, and this whole totally. thing of it's the look and the social statement and, you know, all of that. But, you know, if that's what was exciting, then okay, then that's what you concentrate on. But, but it was also... You know, they didn't just go stand in the street dressed like that and yell those things. Yeah. You know, they started a band, you know, and they made music and people still care. Mm-hmm. Did it suck? I mean, can you say if people still care 40 some years later, I don't know, maybe it didn't suck. Yeah. Maybe it was good enough that like this, we're now approaching like a third generation of young people that hear, you know, anarchy in the UK and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. For the first time. For the first time. Like, okay, there had to be something to that. Whether totally. you think it sucks or not, somebody still cares about it. Yeah. Now, is there stuff out there that people care about that I think sucks? Well, yeah. But at the same time, there's something there. You know, like, am I interested in, like, all the, the snap track stuff on country radio right now? Not in the least. Yeah. You know, I sit at writer's nights and I hear people imitating that and I'm like, yeah, okay. But I can still say that person's doing that well. Yeah, totally. You know, and, you know, one nice thing about living in a place like Nashville is you do come across enough successful people in music that you start to realize that there is really nobody who achieves a serious level that isn't good at what they do. Yeah. No matter what their image might be, you know, there is charisma, there is skill as an entertainer, there is skill as a songwriter... There is a work ethic. There is all of those things. Being you know, able to read a room. Yeah. there. I mean, there's certainly people that, like, especially nowadays, you know, just get brought up out of nowhere. Now suddenly they're big stars. Um, but are those people going to last? How many? How many of those people are someone going to be listening to in 40 years? We don't know. You know, I don't think I could have predicted if you asked me in 1980 um, that people would still know... Jesse's Girl and Eye of the Tiger and My Sharona that those would be like iconic songs. Yeah. But they're still great songs, you know? 
I still remember them, even though I haven't heard any of them in a long time. Yeah. So, who knows, you know, what so enters the canon. Where can people find the book? How can they find you? Do you have any gigs coming up? The book is available anywhere you can buy books. Um, there's the obvious behemoth that everyone's going to go to first. The perpetual and yes, beginner. It's available there. Um, I am a, a strong supporter of bookstores and independent bookstores, so if you have a favorite independent bookstore, it won't be on the shelf, but you can ask, you can ask them to order it, or if you want to go online to the Big A and do it that way, then it's available there as well. Uh, my website is NashvilleGuitarGuru.com. If you search Nashville Guitar Guru, you will find me. If you search The Perpetual Beginner, Dave Isaacs, you will find me. But I would say all major online or brick-and-mortar retailers and NashvilleGuitarGuru.com, and there's links on there also to where you can get the book. And it is available in an ebook version as well. I have not done an audio book yet, but I've been told I should. So I'm, you absolutely should. I'm, I'm thinking that I will. Okay. And do you have any gigs slated coming up here in town in the coming weeks? Gigs? Let me think about this now. Let's see. So I have the 1st of November, All Saints Day, at the Donaldson Pub. The 8th of November, the following Friday, at the Fillin Station in Kingston Springs. And in terms of... I think that's it for coming up in November, got some writer's nights and stuff like that. I have not really been concentrating on performing very much because I've been neck deep in first finishing the book yes. and now getting into promoting it. Plus, I'm in this exploratory phase myself where I'm working on beginning pre-production on a record. And nice. I want it to be tied into at least some of the themes in the book and maybe some of the music that I mention. And so I'm letting this take shape so for the first time instead of saying okay I've got these songs it's time to make a record I'm saying it's time to make a record let's write it and let's really take the time to let this take shape into something that is thoroughly itself so playing out because I need to keep playing but in terms of like really setting up a lot of gigs, it's not something I want to do until I've got, I know what this is going to be. Yeah, you know? totally. What, what am I really putting forward? Especially if I want the CD to be a companion to the book, then that kind of leads things in some different directions. So there's going to be some stuff on there that I might not do if I was doing a singer-songwriter record mm. or something like that. So I've got a bunch of new material, and it's all just developing as I go. So, I, I mean, I play, you know, steadily five, six times a month, doing whatever, and I'm doing more side work with other people playing guitar, like we were talking about before. Nice. And, um, but it's all about moving this project forward, but, awesome. you know, in a way that incorporates everything, so I don't leave the writing music and playing out behind mm -hmm. as this new phase starts to develop. It all needs to be there. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear what's next. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Of course.
今日